Hi folks and welcome once again to The Debrief Live. We are never busier than when the transfer window is open and that's certainly true this month. But here we are again to bring you the latest from the window with Fabrizio Romano, but also to discuss the latest on the Manchester United takeover. Or should that be partial takeover? So Jim Ratcliffe has almost got the keys to the sporting equipment cupboards, but they haven't quite been cut yet. If only the key cutting service was as quick as Timpson's. Then Sir Jim would have his feet under the desk already. And no, we're not sponsored by Timpson's, but there's a thought. Anyway, cutting a dashing figure is the debrief's Ben Jacobs. Ben, hi there. Dishevelled, I think, because remember, we're two weeks almost into the transfer window. So lack of sleep, a lot of caffeine. Looking forward to talking Manchester United. Ex absolutely. More sleep than Fabrizio, as we will learn later. Uh, it's uh, a great to welcome to the debrief a man who seems to have spent half his working life covering the takeover at Old Trafford. Uh, it's the Daily Mail's Chris Wheeler. Chris, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. How's things okay, Angus? All good? Yeah, all all very good. Uh, following it uh, from afar, you are obviously a lot closer to the scene uh, than I am at the moment. Um, what do you think Sir Jim will bring to Manchester United? Well, hopefully, I think a new pair of eyes. I and mean, that's what's been needed for a long time. I think it's a club that's become very much um, set in its ways and not always good ways either. Um, it's been obviously more than 10 years since not only Ferguson went, but also Gill. And I think people maybe overlooked that as being a, a huge factor in the downturn in the club's fortunes over this past 10 years. Um, to lose two figures of that importance um, and that ability, I think, was was absolutely massive. And, and, and so you've seen since then not only that the managers fail, but also the management failed, the actual management of the club, the middle management, the uh, recruitment, everything that follows from it. And, and it's um, it's been a mess for a long time. And I, th I think what Jim Ratcliffe brings is obviously Ineos, is Brailsford, is um, you know a, a forensic eye on how it should be done, how it, how it should be run. And hopefully that fresh approach will bring fresh fortunes, but we'll have to wait and see it. Yeah, might be a long time coming. Ben, what does this deal really look like? I don't know if you can sort of outline it uh, for us. Well, I think to outline it in full, we need about five hours and hundreds of pages <laughs> yeah. of the paperwork. Um, but legal in documents. Terms, exactly. But in basic terms, you've almost got three aspects. You have B shares, you have the A shares, and then you have an injection effectively of equity to the tune of $300 million, which is $200 million up front and then another $100 million in 2024. So the B part is done. Those are the Glazers shares and it's 25% of them, which is about 17%. Then there is a A share tender, which forms part of the completion process. And that is also 25% of the A shares. So an equal amount percentage wise of each. So 17 and about eight, taking you to the 25%. Then in addition, the 300 million will get Sir Jim Ratcliffe just over 4%, which means that his total ownership will be about 29%. And crucially, that means that he is the most powerful individual shareholder, even though he only has a minority. So on the one hand, he's the most significant individual at the club, share-wise. But on the other hand, the six Glazers are still there. So if they choose to block vote, and gang up on him if there's any disagreement, then the Glazers still control the club and the brand. But Jim Ratcliffe, highly significant, along, as Chris said, 
with Sir David Brailsford and Jean-Claude Blanc. And it's going to be fascinating to see how this dynamic of football control and brand or club control works in practice. On paper, it all looks very neat, but obviously the Glazers and Ratcliffe and Ineos have to find a way to coexist. I almost wish I hadn't asked that question, Ben. It's quite quite complicated when you go through A and B shares. But, oh, my God, here we go. Uh, no wonder it's taken so long. Um, is that part of the reason it's been been difficult to cover for you, Chris? Uh, and it seems to have dragged out and, and twisted in all sorts of different ways. Incredible, yeah. I mean, since that first announcement in November 2022, um, it did drag on awfully so, you know. And, and it felt for a long time, I think, because... The fans, maybe, maybe in some ways, the media um, thought with their, their hearts rather than their heads. I think the idea of a 100% takeover by Sheikh Jassim of Qatar um, appealed because it would have seen the end of the Glazer family, which of course has been a very unhappy um, time in, in the club's history, or certainly the second half of it, a very unhappy time in the club's history. And I think maybe. People didn't see the intricacies that Ben's explained to you there, you know, where people thought the complete takeover makes sense, it means more money, um, and therefore that's what's going to happen. And of course, it turns out that Sir Jim Ratcliffe very cannily, you know, realised what the Glazers were all about, what they were looking for. And he realised the only way to get his foot in the door was to do a deal with the devil, as it were, or the, the Kaftans would see it that way. Um, to to keep the Glazers in a majority ownership and to pay a £1.3 billion stake, as I say, to get his foot in the door for what he hopes will be a whole lot more down the road. But yeah, to cover it, it was very twisty, very turny, quite tortuous. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it obviously became clear for quite some time now that Ineos had won the race. And then from that point onwards, it's then been a whole other um, bit of pain that we've been through for even more months and to announce it on Christmas Eve. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking on that. One, but I mean, if, I mean, if that was that was just cruel um, to go and do it then, you know. So I thought, yeah, it's been hard. It's been long. Um, at least now we're getting to the interesting bit where it's stuff we can see, stuff we can hear. In the past, they were sort of bound by all sorts of different rules. And regulations about what could be said um but now we're hearing from them we're seeing them obviously dave railsford's been at the last uh last three games we're seeing jim ratcliffe we believe um at old trafford on sunday for the tottenham game hopefully be speaking to him at some stage this month if not next month and we'll see a bit more transparency now from Ineos about what their plans are and what's going to happen next i suppose the big question is when did you wrap your christmas presents because like you know most men you're clearly waiting for Christmas Eve to do all that. And then this bombshell drops. You go, oh, my God. Did you get it all done in time? Well, this is it. Being a, being a Brit, I mean, Jim Rackler should have known what we were all doing at Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that was really unfair. I didn't um, appreciate that at all. I not I know. We, we got over the line. We got there in the end. But why, oh, why they thought that was a good idea or it was even needed. It was it had gone on so long, I think everyone felt, once we got past whatever the date was, Friday evening um on like the the uh, friday prior to that the the business was then closed we'd be kind of safe until the new year no one saw that one coming uh new year you know to, to go and do it on christmas eve at four o'clock just felt like uh, completely wrong but um yeah we, we all got through it and we're all here to 
Tell the tale, so there you go. Look, we, yeah, we will see uh, a lot more of uh, Sir Jim at Old Trafford as well as David Brailsford, who we've obviously already seen there. What specifically do you think those two and Ineos will bring? You've talked about their sort of forensic look at the sporting structure. What will they specifically be doing, do you think, at Old Trafford, which will be noticeably different from previous regimes? Well, in terms of right now, they are looking, learning, watching. There'll be a lot of very uncomfortable people at Old Trafford right now who've had jobs, uh, very secure jobs for a long time, who will now be looking over their shoulders. They're being watched, they're being um, assessed in every sense. And so that's their current situation. Of course, as you well know, they can't do anything kind of tangible until it's all been okay next month. But they are in the building, they, they are looking and learning. And I think. With Dave Brailsford, you have to look at his history um, in cycling, of course, but in an amateur movement and a professional movement where he is one of these people who accepts his own limitations. I mean, he knows and he said he's not a football expert, but in other sports where he's operated outside of cycling, he has been able to surround himself with the right people, with the best in class kind of right people. So. What he'll be looking to do is to get the right guys around him. I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, since Ferguson and Gill left Man United, what they've lacked is that expertise. Um, you know, obviously, much has been said and written about Ed Woodward and maybe having too much of a say in transfers. People talked about John Murta. Was he the right man for the job? Um, I think John Murta might well stay in the new setup, but not in his current role. I think they will look to get in a football director and head of recruitment. Um, but I think Brailsford will will look to bring in, you know, key people, key senior management people that he will sit on top of that, but he will leave them to do what they do best. It's interesting what you say there, because I always use this uh, analogy. When I go back to the 2003 Rugby World Cup and a different Woodward, so Clive Woodward was in charge, he wasn't the best coach in the world, but he gathered the right team and the right expertise so that England had that extra half of 1% uh, to beat Australia uh, or anyone that stood in their way. And that's why they were ultimately successful. And I think that's that's clearly what we're going to see with the Ineos um, yeah. takeover, as it were, in the, that, that assembly of the right parts to make it an elite sports organisation again is going to very much come to the fore. Exactly that. And I mean, and even Ferguson himself was never the best coach. People talk about, you know, Ferguson being the best coach of all time. He wasn't. He was a master man manager. That's what he did well. That's what he, 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 he sat at the top of that pyramid. He was the ultimate leader, uh, but he knew his own limitations and he knew that he wasn't maybe the best guy on the training pitch. And his best moments always came with a good number two next to him. On the few occasions, whether it was Kiros, whether it was Walter Smith, you know, whether it was mm. all of these people, whenever Fergie was left to his own devices, it never went so well, you know, that, that he was always better doing what he did best and having the, the staff around him to do what they did best. And that's how it's always worked. And I think with Dave Railsford, you know, he comes from and Olympic movements where, where they operate in a way that the people in charge of each sport aren't always experts in that sport. Mm. What they're very good at, and then that includes him more than anybody else, what they're very good at 
is they they know when to get involved and when to stand back and let the experts take control. And, and I think Dave will be very much of a mind to do the exact same thing here, that he, he has, of course, um, Jean-Claude Blanc coming in as the uh, CEO. Um, every chance we're going to see Dan Ashworth as a football director, you know, maybe even Paul Mitchell, who, like Ashworth, has links to Brailsford, you know, coming in in terms of the head of recruitment, but key personnel coming into key positions, which in the past they've not really had. It's interesting what you say, Chris, and I, you could react to this, Ben, about how many nervous people there might be at Old Trafford at the moment. You know, everyone is being assessed, ultimately. This is this is a club ripe for um, processing in the right direction. Yeah, and I think this started during the process when Sir Jim Ratcliffe made a point of going to Manchester in the earlier part for meetings. It was builders' due diligence, but it was also about every department presenting their situation to Ratcliffe and Ineos. And since then... There's been a movement, strategically speaking, by Ineos to work out what they're going to need if they're successful. Because my understanding is that the Ratcliffe deal for a majority stake was effectively dead. And there were very vocal protestations, some formal, basically stating that originally, if Ratcliffe was to buy a majority stake of Glazer's B shares, then the A shareholders would be cut out of a deal and they would gang up and there would be a potential legal case. And then Ratcliffe pivoted because he and Ineos have been flexible and they moved to this minority 25%. As early, I'm told, as the summer, even though we were hearing reports that the process was paused or that the Glazers wouldn't sell at all. So since May, really, of last year, or certainly the late part of the summer transfer window, Ineos have been assessing. And that continues now, concurrent with the completion process. And probably, I would say, for four, even eight weeks afterwards. This strategic review could be six or seven weeks, but it could be 100 days. And that will be led, to my knowledge anyway, by Sir Dave Brailsford. And in that 100 days, and based upon meetings that took place in Manchester last week, there will be an assessment at all levels. And that will include the football department. And you can't move Manchester United forwards, Chris, unless you don't just think of things in terms of immediate results or managers. There has to be foundational change. And that foundational change may be in a football department. It may be in a commercial department. But if you don't start with a strategy and be patient and get the right names and structures in, then my feeling anyway, I don't know if you agree, Chris, is Manchester United will go round and round in circles because managers since Alex Ferguson have been so scapegoated and there's been such an urgent need for results in Champions League football. But chopping and changing, even though Abramovich maybe had some success at Chelsea, doesn't traditionally work, not in modern football. You need a strategy, you need foundational change, you need a modernisation at all levels of Manchester United, and then it will eventually, who knows, maybe instantly, but eventually lead to more consistent football success. And my feeling is that's why everyone is being assessed, and that's my feeling from talking to Ineos sources and maybe some nervous people at Manchester United but I think it's probably still fair to say, Chris, that Ineos and Ratcliffe won't be rushing this process. 100%. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they haven't got to where they are now overnight and the way back will not happen overnight. It just can't. You know, they've they've gone a long route um, down the wrong turn, if that makes sense. You know, and it's going to be... I mean, 
I don't think it's 10 years back again. I think you only have to look at Liverpool and Klopp to see how quickly, if you get the right coaching and the right guys around him, how quickly a club can turn around. It doesn't have to be 10 years back, you know. I mean, they can they can get this done relatively quickly if they have the right people there. But you're absolutely right. Um, Ineos won't be charging in there thinking they can tear it all up and start again and somehow turn things around in months. It will not happen that way. It can't happen that way, you know. But they are business people. They are smart people. They've gone involved in sports, of course. They know how these things work, even up until now, football, you know, has been maybe only part of their portfolio. But um, no, I mean, they know what they're doing. They will come in, they will, will be realistic, they'll give people a chance, and that includes Ten Hag, um, to, to show what they're all about. Um, absolutely, it's been 10 years of a slow decline in every sense, every part of the club, from the stadium to the, to the team, to, to the managers who've, who've come and tried and failed. And as you say, it can't always be on the manager. It can't be that one guy's fault. You can't keep just sacking the manager and starting again and hoping that will bring about some sort of uh, seismic change. That can't happen. It, it runs deeper than that. It runs to the heart of the club. It runs. I mean, if you look at now, Ansel Marshall, he's still there. He might be gone this month, more likely gone in the summer. Um, he, he, he dates back to the Van Gaal era. And then you've got, you know, you've got Mourinho, you've got Solskjaer, and now you've got Ten Hag. You can't just keep sacking managers, keeping the same squad and thinking that it's going to change again tomorrow. It will not happen. So I, I think change obviously is needed, huge change at every level of the club. In the Arsenal, that, um, they will kind of oversee that change. How fast they can do it, given the finances, um, and again, that's one... I guess, point against Ratcliffe that wasn't counting against the shape. There was this feeling there was a kind of bottomless pit of money because people expect that these days from the Middle East and it's going to happen that way, would it? We'll never know now. But obviously with Ratcliffe, because um, of its apart ownership, um, he can only do so much. It'd be interesting to see actually how this now plays out, this, this sort of dual control of who puts the money in, um, who pays for the stadium renovations or a whole new stadium. Have to wait and see, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, huge change needed, and any else will not be rushing into this one at all. We'll, we'll go into uh, more on that in just a minute with uh, Chris and Ben. Thanks for your comments, keep them coming in. Um, as Mike Scully said, it's long overdue. We need to turn around ASAP. Well, uh, yeah, do let us know on the comments section and uh, we'll ask any questions that uh, the guys might be able to answer. But for the moment, let's chat, chat to our uh, transfer guru the one and only Fabrizio Romano, and find out what the transfer news is from Old Trafford and the rest of the world. Fabrizio, thanks as ever for joining us. Let's start with Manchester United. Uh, Jim Ratcliffe is officially coming in in February. Any word yet on a leading candidate to become the sporting director? Yeah, work in progress on that. There is still the same list of names we mentioned many times, including Paul Mitchell, including many other people. But the name of Dan Ashworth, I think, is the strongest name in this moment. Uh, is the most appreciated by people at Ineos. I'm hearing they really like uh, his his work, his ideas, uh, the potential idea of project with Dan Ashworth uh, being the new director of Manchester United. So he's the leading candidate in Ineos' ideas. Then, obviously, he's under contract at Newcastle, and Newcastle believe that he's only focused on their project. So Newcastle keep playing down all the rumors because they want to continue with Dan Ashworth, and 
he's absolutely focused on, on Newcastle. But I think Ineos will try to push in the next weeks again and again for him because he's considered the best candidate for their, for their project. And then we have to see if they want to go with a structure with one single person or if they want to involve maybe two, three people, for example, as Chelsea did recently. So I think also the structure is going to be important to understand how many people will join Manchester United. Well, on the field, at the time of recording, Jaden Sancho to Dortmund, it, it's nearly done, isn't it? Give us the details of, of that one. Yeah, it's almost completed. Uh, Borussia Dortmund and May United are speaking again today, uh, even in the morning. Contacts were very positive. Now it's really about the final details and then the deal will be will be done. Uh, on player side, it's already done. It's almost uh, 10 days now because he wants to go to Dortmund. So the two clubs are completing the deal in terms of details of the loan, but it's going to be around four or five million euros loan fee and salary coverage. So this will be the final uh, package. The player is ready to travel. So he's just waiting for the green light already since last week. So it's only on the clubs, but I think we are really at the final stages of this of this story. And then uh, it's also important to mention that there will be no buy option. May United want to assess the situation of Jadon Sancho again in the summer with probably a new director deciding on this. So they don't want to agree on any buy option now also because the player is not playing since September. So they believe that the value of Jadon Sancho now is not realistic. They want him to go on loan and then to decide in the summer uh, what they want to do with, uh, with Jadon Sancho. As you say, Fabrizio Sancho is only a loan. So is that enough, financially speaking, to allow Manchester United to move in the market? And is a striker this January a possibility? I think it's a possibility. It's not guaranteed. It's a possibility because they spoke to many representatives of strikers multiple times. So they have some ideas. They have some opportunities. Timo Werner was one of the names they discussed, but then they decided not to proceed. It was never a negotiation with Leipzig. It was just a conversation with his agents. They spoke to the agents of Girassi, for example, but then the player is at AFCON now, and so they don't want to enter into that kind of conversation. So I think it's going to be it's going to be something that they will decide in the next days, in the next weeks, not now, will be in the final part of the transfer window. But it remains a possibility. And it's also important to see what happens with Anthony Martial, because we have a lot of stories, a lot of rumors, but so far, May United have not received any formal proposal for Martial. So let's see if something will arrive. I still expect him to leave. If it's not now, it's going to be in the summer as free agent, because I don't see any chance for a contract extension, but keep an eye also on Martial because in case he leaves and Sancho, and so it becomes two players leaving May United, I think there could be a chance for them to sign a new striker. Let's move on to Spurs. They've done good business so far. Timo Werner has joined on a loan deal and Radu Dragasen has agreed to a move from Genoa. But I'm not sure you got too much sleep last night, Fabrizio, because the Romanian defender made everybody, including Spurs, just sweat a little bit, didn't he? Yeah, it was a crazy story, honestly, a crazy saga because Dragusin was very close to joining Tottenham already after Christmas in the final days of the of December. Everything was was almost agreed on player side and was very advanced between clubs. Then Genoa decided to accept Tottenham proposal already yesterday in the morning. What happened is that Bayern really tried to hijack the move. They first had some contacts on player side, then they presented the formal proposal to Genoa. Uh, it was a reporter proposal because Tottenham were offering Jeff Pence, including in the deal, some add-ons as part of the package. Bayern decided to go with a cash proposal. It was around 30, 31 million euros guaranteed for Genoa, for, uh, for Radu Dragosin, and Genoa were prepared to accept both proposals. So what happens during the night is that Tottenham tried again to change the structure of their proposal, to change that in terms of payment terms, so to make it easier 
for, uh, for Genoa and for Radu Dragusin for the add-ons of his salary. And then they got the final green light in the morning. And Dragusin is now traveling to London with, uh, with his agent. It's going to be a 25 million euros deal, 5 million euros in very easy add-ons. So it's almost guaranteed 30 million euros for Genoa and just pencil loan with buy option to Genoa. Well, it's a great news for Spurs fans. They've also been linked with Conor Gallagher. Any developments there? No, not yet. Um, I think it's not going to be something imminent. It's not going to be something easy. Uh, also because Gallagher remains an important player for Chelsea and for Mauricio Pochettino. So at the moment, I'm not aware of any direct negotiation with Chelsea. The interest is still there. We mentioned that many times with Ange Postecoglou being a big fan of the player. But the priority was a centre-back and Dragusin is coming. The priority was one more offensive player and Timo Werner joined the club. So I think now Tottenham will take some time to complete some outgoing like Eric Dyer. Let's see what happens with Bayern. There are also other players who could be on the move, like Brian Hill. So I think it will be an open situation, a fluid situation this week and next week. And then we have to see what happens for the midfielder. But I'm not sure it's going to be an easy story with Chelsea because they want a big amount of money. And uh, it's not going to be easy also to understand what happens with Pierre Hoiberg. I think the only way for Tottenham to bring in a new midfielder in the January window, let's see if Gallagher or any other, is to sell Pierre Hoiberg on permanent transfer or loan with obligation. And it's not that easy at that point. Nothing's easy at Chelsea. Ben knows that. Uh, Ian, Ian Matson is about to leave Chelsea on loan to Dortmund. Do you think Chelsea are now bringing a left-back and are there any names on the list? Yeah, I would keep that open, honestly. Um, I think at Chelsea now they are discussing internally, also involving Pochettino to see what positions they want to cover. They are taking their time because they believe in this moment there is still no big opportunity on the on the market. We had many rumours also about Todibo in the recent weeks, but I'm told there is nothing really concrete in terms of negotiations between Chelsea, Todibo or Nice. So at the moment, in terms of left-back, I think that could be a possibility, but it's not something guaranteed. Also for Jan Matsen, they extended the contract for two more years. It includes a release clause which is going to be also an opportunity for Borussia Dortmund in the summer in case they want to keep the player after these six-month loans. So there are plenty of possibilities they are discussing internally, but at the moment it's not something close. So I think we have to wait and see what Chelsea will decide to do in the next days. Let's talk about Arsenal now, Fabrizio. Do you sense that they may look for a striker this January or wait until the summer? Um, what's the latest on Eddie and Ketia amidst some firm interest from Crystal Palace? Yeah, interest from Palace is there. Not only Palace, many clubs are interested in, in adding Ketia. The point is, it's not easy for Arsenal in this moment to find a striker on the market who can be part of their project on long term. We know how Arsenal work. I want to remind what happened two years ago with Dujan Vlaovic. They wanted to sign a striker. They wanted Dujan Vlaovic. Vlaovic decided to go to Juventus and Arsenal decided not to panic. They decided to wait and to go for different strategies, so not to sign a striker in January and to sign the striker in the summer. So Arsenal will keep going with that kind of strategy, or they find the player they want, or they're not going for a panic buy, especially in a crucial position like a striker. So they are not going to do something they are not 100% convinced about. So that's why at the moment they don't find uh, a, a normal option, a good option on the market. All the players they like, for example, Ivan Tony, are very expensive or maybe not even available on the market like Victor Osimhen. So I think it's going to be difficult for Arsenal to find a striker. I'm sure they will try for a fullback. I'm sure they will try for a striker. But at the moment, it's not an easy market in, uh, in general. And that's why from Ketia, before giving the green light, they have to make sure to find another option on the market. But at the moment, it's still not easy. Well, let's end up with Victor Osimhen. And there's been a war of words, hasn't there, between agents after rumours uh, the Nigerian might consider a Saudi move this summer. What more can you tell us on that? 
honestly, it's quite crazy what's going on. Let me say, I think in general around Victor Osiman, uh, and also in this case, it's not Victor Osiman's fault or, or his camp fault. We had many stories about Osiman in September, in October with Napoli, but in this case, to see the statement of the agent of your teammate, an important teammate like Grisha Kvaraskelia, mentioning in public about a potential move to Saudi in the summer, was something really surprising for Napoli. It's a terrible season and also this kind of things we can see is, is completely, completely crazy. So Victor Osiman had to react and it was a very strong statement. His agent did the same with one more statement in the morning. I think it's quite tense situation in general around Napoli, but in this case, it's not Victor Osiman's fault. It's really surprising to see the agent of another player mentioning what's going to happen with your teammate. So I think for Victor Osiman's situation, this is not going to change in January. I still see Victor Osiman not available on the January transfer window. But I think in the summer, the possibility of Osiman leaving is obviously concrete because there is a release clause in the contract. But I'm not that sure there is going to be Saudi. Saudi can be a possibility. They wanted him last summer. Alilal made a very important proposal. So I'm sure they still appreciate Victor Osiman. But we can't guarantee that. And that's why Osiman wanted to protect himself from that story. Fabrizio, as ever, we appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Get some sleep. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, maybe in three weeks. <laughs> thank you. Thanks a lot. Ciao, Fabrizio. Ciao. Ciao. Bye, bye, bye. He did tell us before that that he got two hours sleep last night. I don't know whether that's a that's a lot for him during the transfer window or a little. I'm not sure. I think it's and it's sort of true to form for him. Uh, thank you for your comments. We did get through as uh, many questions as we could uh, to Fab. Um, about Arsenal signing strikers, Aussie men, and all all sorts. Anyway, on the debrief this week, we have the Daily Mail's Chris Wheeler and, as ever, Ben Jacobs. Chris, I want to come to you. Something you said um, before we heard from Fab that you think uh, Eric Ten Hag's job is safe. Is that for the moment um, or long term? Do you feel? I, I'm not sure that he's safe. I mean, I think you know, there's no imminent threat. I think uh, Ten Hag. It's been a strange old season. Well, for all of us, it's been a strange old season. Uh, for the whole club, it's been a strange season. But in, in his case, I think the old regime that's now sort of handing over power to Ineos um, were very reluctant to get rid of him. I think that um, they brought him in, they backed him. The last thing they wanted to do was to go and sack him. And I think unless it was a complete meltdown, I don't think he was under any great threat up to this point. However, You've now got the new people coming in, and as any manager knows, that's always a uh, precarious time. That if if people that didn't appoint you come into the club, um, they've got no dog in this fight, they've got no kind of like loyalty to you whatsoever. Um, that always puts you in a in a rather strange situation. And the way this season's gone so far, they've lost half of their games. I mean, that, you know, this is Manchester United. They've lost half of their games out of Europe, bottom of the group. Um, is it nine points off the top four, eight off Spurs going into the game on Sunday? Um, it's not been a good season. Yes, injuries, but so have other clubs. You know, it's been a really, really poor season and bad timing because, of course, now he's got new employers effectively, he's got new, new people over him. You know, this season of one step forward and one step back cannot continue. You know, he has to put together consistency. In, in, the, in the performances, in the results. And hopefully the only good news for him right now is he's got key players coming back in January. He needs to get back to, to that consistency that he had last season, you know, to go and get Martinez back in again, get Casemiro back in again, and to somehow get back to where they were last season. Because 
If he doesn't, um, Ineos, no knee-jerk reactions. I'd be, I'd be kind of, you know, like we talked about earlier. I don't think they're going to come in and, and make any rash moves. But equally, end of the season, they've got to sit down, as with every other person on the staff at the club, decide whether they're the right man going forward. And, and right now, I'd say, you know, it's in the balance from this point of view. Ben, I just want to pick up on that uh, in light of Chelsea, because Abil Santete asked this question. I was going to ask it to you anyway. Will Chelsea fire Pochettino? He's he's won, he's lost as many games as he's won in the Premier League. Last night, clearly against Middlesbrough, doesn't help his cause. What's the feeling uh, at Stamford Bridge with regards to uh, Maurizio Pochettino? I think the feeling is that Pochettino and Eric Ten Hag draw some parallels in many ways, even though it's very different circumstances. And Pochettino is likely to be judged in the summer as part of a pre-planned appraisal. I think with Ten Hag, it's different because he and the football department had to wait for the ownership situation to resolve, understand who their bosses would be. And it's normal that Ineos are not going to assess anything until they're actually in. So we've heard a lot of rumours about names being linked with Manchester United. And it's true to a degree that every single football club, even, for example, Brighton with De Zerbi, have to think about a succession plan. And maybe what Manchester United have done worse than others is not plan for their future in all areas. And it leads to these panic appointments, whether that's on the football side or at an executive level, and potentially gaps as well where you need interim-type figures. And Ralph Ranić's very interesting because he said publicly that Manchester United needed open heart surgery, but he was never really given the tools in order to facilitate that. And it's so hard when you've got a stopgap type appointment because they need to gain the respect and you don't gain respect at big clubs unless people trust you, obviously, but also think that you're there for the long term. Otherwise, there's always a danger that certain individuals will try and ride you out. And when you need long-term foundational change and modernisation, it's so hard to do at a club like Manchester United. Chelsea's almost the opposite in the sense that everything's been stripped. Everything is young. And although Chelsea are below Manchester United in the table, they maybe are calmer about their project because they do have this modernisation plan. We've obviously seen it with the revamp on the field on the men's side. But in addition to that, they're already starting plans for their stadium redevelopment or building a new stadium. That is still a conversation that Ineos and the Glazers need to have. So with Pochettino, he's only on a two-year contract and the third year is at the club option. So halfway through that guaranteed contract, Pochettino will be assessed. And it's going to have to take something spectacular, I think like with Ten Hag, for that to change. So no imminent pressure for Pochettino, but football is a results-driven business. It won't help him if they go out against Middlesbrough, not just because it's Middlesbrough, but it's their best opportunity at the moment to guarantee some kind of European football. But I do think there's an appreciation that Pochettino has had to handle quite a lot. A young team, he's relatively new, there's been injuries, there's been big chances missed. So the scrutiny of Pochettino and the pressure is around one or two things. Selection, for example, should Broya have started last night? Should Levi Colwell be playing at left-back? But I don't think there's any suggestion that he's lost the dressing room or lost the support of the ownership. And as long as you've got the dressing room and the ownership, then yes, it's a results-driven business, but you're going to have a little bit more time. As soon as you lose the ownership or the dressing room, the writing's on the wall. We're not there yet with Pochettino. And that's why I'm told that there's no imminent possibility of a sacking. 
Well, let's get back to Manchester United uh, while you control your the, the wild animals that are uh, roaming around your flat, Ben. Um, I'll come back to Chris. Chris, um, let's think of some names um, that might be thrown to the wolves. Let's let's continue the analogy. Casemiro, Martial, you expect them to, to leave Old Trafford um, sooner rather than later? Yeah, is the honest answer. I think what you've seen over the past year or so is the club because of FFP now looking more closely at what they spend, how they spend it. You saw this with De Gea, of course, last year, where obviously Ten Hag made a football decision that he felt that he wanted to go a different route. But there was a chance for De Gea to stay, but on lower terms. That couldn't be done. He left. But you saw them having given him that that deal of 375 a week realizing maybe that wasn't the best move trying to drive that down it couldn't be done he then left and um you're seeing it again now where i think the deals for casemiro and Varane a year earlier haven't aged so well i think you've got two guys there you know on on huge money um and a year or so or in Varane's case two years in um it's not you know it's not quite the deal it looked at the time and so I think with Marshall, he's on about 250 a week. They're looking obviously to go and move him on. He can go this month or in, in the summer, but his time's now up. Um, but I think the Varane one's interesting because he is a top player and he is in the team. And ideally, you know, he would be first choice every single week. His knees aren't great, um, but he is still performing well. But then they kind of realised that at 340 a week, that is very, very toppy. And, and they need to try and get that down. And so it's interesting but in giving the 12-month extensions to Wan-Bissaka, to Medjury and to uh, Lindelof, they've not activated the extension with uh, Varane. They're looking to, to go and drive down his wage. They could keep him, but on a, but on a, a completely new deal and a lower wage. And I think the same will apply to Casemiro. If not now, certainly um, in the summer, they will look at that one. He's that bit older too, of course. Um, it turned up this season, didn't look in the best shape, didn't play very well, scored four goals, but didn't play very well. Um, been badly missed though this 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 season. More the, the Casemiro of last season, the Casemiro of this season. But uh, I think come the summer, with his age and his wages, I think he's he's vulnerable too. And I think all these guys now um, that are on these big contracts. They'll be looking at trimming the squad, you know, re-evaluating how they use their money uh, to restructure contracts and getting players, you know, who maybe are coming for the football, not not the uh, not not the kind of cash as it were, you know. Chris, there's a lot of work to do off the field. Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos will play a part of that. It's an intriguing balance, isn't it, between the Glazers, as we've already said, and Ineos CEO is going to be quite telling as well, because if it's Jean-Claude Blanc, it kind of gives Ineos a foot on the brand side, but maybe the Glazers will have other ideas about structure as well. And you could argue that's their appointment, not Ineos's, because it's not exclusively a football appointment. And all of these names are going to have to determine what's going on with Carrington redevelopments and also Old Trafford. What's your understanding about either a time scale for consultations around Old Trafford? And do we know whether Sir Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos have a preference between building a new stadium or redeveloping? It's a good point, Ben. And I mean, you explained very well earlier about the, the nuts and bolts of the deal, the, the A&B shares and all the rest of it. But then there was this almost this this gray area this like subplot to what happened and in terms of this transition phase now where 
in these this month or two that uh, it goes through that the INEOS have to be consulted over managerial sackings, new signings, any major football decisions. So how this thing plays out now with the Glazers in INEOS, you know, Ratcliffe and Joel Glazer, it'll be, it'll be quite fascinating to see because these things kind of historically don't always work out so well, you know, and, and will the Glazers leave Ratcliffe, you know, to, 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 to control the football side? Will Ratcliffe get dragged into the other stuff, you know? So um, I, I, where does Jean-Claude Blanc sit there? As you say, it's kind of football, but it's also not football. So it's going to be interesting to see how that whole dynamic develops over time. And we'll have to wait and see with that. But in terms of the stadium, as the song goes, Old Trapper's falling down, and it kind of is, you know, we've had the roof leaking, walls, walls falling down, raw chicken, all sorts of stuff going on. <laughs> and, um, you know, oh, yeah, Man United. It's just, so where we go from here, as I'm sure that you all know, um, there's effectively, I guess, three options. One is a complete redevelopment of the stadium um, as it stands in its current footprints. One is to focus on that main stand, the, the Bobby Charlton stand. And that has always been an issue because of your, and extend that stand out over the train tracks behind it. They now feel they have the the um, the, uh, the 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 kind of wherewithal and technology to go and do that, um, to, to go and make that viable, to make that as big as the Alex Ferguson stand facing it. Um, so that's possible. Or knock the whole thing down and start again. Build next door. You know, so you you knock down Old Trafford. That becomes the car park while you're putting up a whole new stadium. I can see, of course, when you look at Tottenham, you can see yeah. the appeal of that. Of course you can. But equally, there were people, um, maybe me included, who, who who wouldn't like to see Old Trafford knocked down. The kind of history, there's so much there, um, you know, that, that to go and knock down Old Trafford and start again might, might be the future, but it feels like you're kind of trampling all over the past, you know. So options there. They appointed master planners, architects, um, as a populist of, about 18 months, two years ago, that like many things at the club has sort of stood still because of this whole um, takeover, mini takeover, this like review, everything's kind of been waiting to see what happens. I'm quite sure if, again, if Sheikh Jassim had come in, it would be a more simple process, but now you have this Jim Ratcliffe in the arse minority stake, how does this play out? And obviously he is, he's going to commit about 240 million pounds to Carrington to Old Trafford. Um, people say that's not obviously not nearly enough in terms of a two billion two billion pound rebuild. Um, so who picks up the tab for this? Who actually pays for it? It's going to be interesting going forward. But Old Trafford clearly is in need of a bit of love. Um, Carrington, I think less. I mean, they just paid about seven million to to upgrade the women's um, and the academy buildings there. It's in, it's in fairly good shape. It's not on a par, of course, with a number of the clubs, you know, out there because it's been a good 25 years since it first opened. Um, but I think Old Trafford has to be the main focus and what happens there, I think is going to be key. Yeah, Ben, briefly, um, just tell me what's the latest with Mary Earps because, I mean, we're talking about players who might be leaving in the likes of Casemiro and Martial. We should, it would be remiss of us not to talk about Mary Earps, who's clearly the talk of the UK and the fact that she might be leaving Old Trafford. Yeah, I think this is a saga that Ineos inherit and ultimately their ambition is for the men and women's team and the academy as well. So you would presume they want to keep Earps, but nothing has progressed with contract talks with Mary Earps. And she's recently appointed a big new 
agency to look after her, A&V Sports Agency, who amongst their clients, for example, have Ada Hegerberg. And the feeling is that Manchester United have got a battle on their hands if they are to get Earps to sign a new deal. We know that Arsenal have tried in the past. They could revisit in the summer of 2024, but the feeling is that abroad might be the more likely destination for Earps. So PSG could be one to watch. They're certainly interested in the player. Earps has sort of implied and even said publicly that people are misrepresenting her position and that one day she'll be able to tell the truth and to avoid a lot of the talk and the rumour. But I do think that it's by no no means certain by any stretch of the imagination that Earps will extend at Manchester United and the new agency could play a part in a move. So if Ineos want to be ambitious on the women's side, they'll absolutely want to keep Earps, but that is a big, big challenge. I want to go back to something just to round up, Chris, on what you said um, about the difficulties involved with the Glazers and Ineos. And it is the big question, can it work having this relationship together where Look, Sir Jim's used to owning a, a whole business, a very clever businessman, made an awful lot of money. He'll want to control as much of uh, Manchester United uh, PLC as possible. So can it work, this relationship between the two? Well, wait and see. I mean, we just don't know, do we? Um, it's an interesting one. It's it's more complicated and convoluted than it would have been if it had been an a complete takeover by Sheikh Jassim. Um, it creates its own problems, its, its own questions, its own uncertainty about what happens next. And I think the Glazers, um, without being too harsh on them, I think they've probably shown their their true colours here. They, you know, um, it was interesting in the in the kind of fine print of the um, the announcements on Christmas Eve was that that not only was Jim Ratcliffe taking over football operations, they'd asked him to take over. They'd actually asked him and said, please come and take over the football operations of <laughs> the football club, which for me was quite was quite shocking. I thought he'd have been fighting tooth and nail to get that. And he'd have been a kind of major bone of contention. But actually, no, they said, please come and take over. So clearly they have no particular interest in football side of things. Their interest, is, I think, is bands of thought for many, many years now. It kind of extends to, to the... Uh, the commercial side, the money-making side of things. Um, so they've made their intentions clear. Um, I think the hope for fans going forward, as I say, I think the 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 black mark against the Ratcliffe investment was that it gave the Glazers um, a foothold. It kept them involved and anything to do with them was always going to be toxic. I think the hope for fans now that it is him and it's not the shake is that it's the beginning of a process uh, as Ben mentioned earlier, it's 29%, you know, by the time this, this is all said and done. And hopefully, because also there were clauses in place that he gets first option to buy more shares in the future, he will see this as a foot in the door. And, in, and as the years go by, he can continue to buy up chunks until he has complete power. That can be the only hope because um, I, I do share your um, concern there that, that uh, uh, a sort of dual ownership um thing it, it seems to be fraught with at best questions you know at worst real problems going forward because when things go wrong who's at fault when things are being paid for who pays for it these are questions that none of us know yet and hopefully we'll find out sooner rather than later i don't think sir jim goes into any business thinking he's not going to own it um outright at some stage uh he's too shrewd for that and um he will be eating his way into that share capital very soon, I would have thought, and, and dominating um, 
that that board and that club. Uh, ben, your final thoughts? Just the dynamic again. And I think one thing we didn't mention is that the Glazers have got this shorter term 18-month clause, which actually allows them to drag as it's referred to Sir Jim Ratcliffe, into a full sale, providing it's at $33 per share or more. So the cynics will say the Glazers are going to keep the club somehow on the market, explore opportunities, and if they can get an outright sale, they might. And the sort of irony in all of this is that it was intimated to me throughout the process the Glazers were determined sellers at the right price, whereas now, in hindsight, there may be a feeling from others that they always wanted to stay. This was always the game. But they can have their cake and eat it. They can wait for the expanded Club World Cup. They can wait to see what happens on the football side. They can use Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos and distance themselves and say, well, we're not in control now of the football side. But by the way, look at all our great commercial deals and look at all of our globalization. And in many ways, all the scrutiny becomes on Ineos, but all the profit can still go to the Glazers. And this gives them the ability to, as a six, and I'm not saying they're always united, but if they choose to, as a six, effectively unify, they still have the control of the football club, and we mustn't forget that. So the terms are really complicated. I agree with both of you that the Ineos long-term plan is a path to control, but in the short term, the Glazers are still there. And we know that the Glazers are slow decision makers, meticulous, and ultimately will look at Manchester United Football Club as a vehicle that can make the money. And in addition to that, if they can grow the brand side, a lot of the pressure turns to Ineos. So all of the criticism and Glazers out and Ferrari around why it's not 100% sale is kind of over for now as people give Ratcliffe a chance. But the Glazers end here with their control collectively and they still have the ability to sell the club if they want to and they have the ability to let Ratcliffe do all the football legwork. So I see it as Glazers having their cake and eating it, but I yeah, think Ratcliffe's a shrewd negotiator. So it's a fascinating dynamic. It's a win-win, it seems to me, for the Glazers. Um, lastly, Ben, $33 a share. What does that value Manchester United at? Do you, have you done the sums? Well, I think when we do the sums, if we include all the debt and everything like that, then it effectively comes to just over, I think, $6 billion is the all-in if you're also adding the debt to that. But I think the actual stake itself is only just over a billion. So it's a little bit lower than was anticipated throughout the process. I think it's about 1.3 billion US. I'd have to look at all the documentation and get a calculator out to give you the specifics. Don't, but don't you worry. You, you, you've done billion. well enough on your A and B shares. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> if, if we go away with a ballpark figure of 6 billion, which it is always sort of been, then, then I think we'll all understand. But that's double the market value. Let's not forget, though, it's near double the market value. You know, what he's paying for the 25%, presuming the A-share tender goes through, is going to be about $1 billion, just over, in English terms, although the currency of the tender process was dollars. So it's a good bit of business for Ratcliffe if you look at it that way, given that throughout the process we heard the Glazers wanted a lot more. We wanted $6, six billion. Uh, indeed. We will leave it there, gents. Thank you both very much indeed. Chris Wheeler from the Daily Mail, Ben Jacobs from the Debrief and all other uh, other outlets. And uh, we will be back again next week. Of course, Fabrizio will be with us once more as the transfer window remains open, giving us all the latest on the transfer news. And we'll have another hot topic for you next week. From us all here on the Debrief, it's cheerio. <laughs>